So last week we covered 27 chapters. If you weren't here, you're wondering how we did that, but we, we did. And we did so by sampling uh, some passages which uh, showed some of Isaiah's uh, repeated and recurring themes. We're going to do the same this evening. And we've been told that we should expect, so we're at chapter 27, we should expect to see Isaiah accusing Israel's leaders of mismanagement. I think we'll jump in at chapter 30. Look with me for a second, the opening verses of chapter 30, and we'll get a feel for Isaiah's preaching against Israel's leaders. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. But Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. Isaiah's not happy. Woe is kind of like a very strong way. If you introduce a speech with a woe, Jesus did that from time to time when he really needed to, he really needed to show people that, that he wasn't happy. That's what Isaiah is doing here. What's the problem? What's the nature of the accusation? Carrying out plans that aren't mine, forming an alliance but not by my spirit, looking for help in Egypt. So there's political pressure coming from Assyria, but rather than turning to the Lord and saying, in God we trust, Israel's leaders go elsewhere. They've placed their trust in Egypt, in Pharaoh, rather than the living God. Just to confirm that we're, we're getting this right, to flick with me to chapter 31. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots, and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. It, it's pretty clear, isn't it, what, what the problem is here? Just one more passage. I, I said when we started this series that Isaiah has a particular gift for drama, dramatic, um, just putting things dramatically in images that when you see them, you won't forget them. I want to show you a, a really powerful one. It stuck with me like that once I read it. Chapter 36. It's a very dramatic image about this relying on Egypt. The words here are spoken actually not by Isaiah, but by an Assyrian field commander. But they're powerful nonetheless. Look at verse 6. Look, he says, I know that you're depending on Egypt that splintered reed of a staff which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. Brilliant image. So you're struggling to walk for whatever reason. You're old or you're, you're injured. And you reach out for a staff and you put your full weight on it and a splinter drives into your hand. The staff you reached out, you hoped it was going to make things better and it's only making things worse. 
Folks, we need to pause there and, and maybe just ask ourselves, do you know what it's like to put your trust in the wrong things? And to get splinters? I do. As a young man in my sort of early 20s, I was in, I was going to say a wrong relationship, but I don't think that's the right way of putting it. That would be to blame another person. I was in a relationship in the wrong kind of way. I put my trust in that uh, girl, in that relationship. I put my hope for, for happiness in in, and my future in her. And while I was hoping in that way in her, I wasn't able to say, in God I trust. That was one of the most painful episodes of my life. Splinters all around. Are you putting your trust in the wrong things? Wealth. If only I'm financially secure, then I'll be happy. That's all right until the market bangs. Whatever market you're relying on. Status. If I can make sure that people think I'm great, then life will be great. What happens when people don't think you're great anymore? Addictions, the very definition of a splintering staff. Something that you reach out to to help you that only makes things worse and worse and worse. I don't know. That next look at the wrong stuff on the internet not just talking about pornography. Could be shopping. Buying stuff, the next hit. Could be the next socially acceptable drug. If I just have that next thing, if I, then everything will be fine. Brothers and sisters, we were made for the living God. We were made not to depend on other things. In God we trust. Whenever we started to get into the text of Isaiah's prophecy last week, we noticed he had to say a lot of stuff about judgment. Do you remember God had called him, commissioned him, he said, I'm going to give you a really hard message. You have to preach to these people that, that my judgment is over them. So Isaiah's been faithful. But a lovely thing that we noticed in the middle of all of that darkness was that there were messages of hope along the way. In this particular section, which we're looking at here, there's also a beautiful message of hope. Let's read it, just to, just to allow it to do its work. Chapter 35. 
In a part of the book where Isaiah is recording his oracles of judgment against Israel's leaders, he kind of just interrupts the flow of the judgment. And he talks about a time when the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it'll burst into bloom. It'll rejoice greatly and shout for joy. Jump to verse 5. Then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand, it's going to become a pool. The thirsty ground, bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It'll be called the way of holiness. It'll be for those who walk on that way. The unclean won't journey on it. Wicked fools won't go on it. No lion will be there or any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They'll enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Darkness, sorry, gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Wow. Do you remember what we said last week? We've got to keep this before us. Where there's judgment, there's hope. Another judgment section here which has been interrupted by a beautiful message of hope. Some of you are old enough to remember the old song, Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion. Don't worry, we're not going to sing it. But that's, that's the message in chapter 35. God hasn't given up on his people after all. We're going to take a moment uh, and pause again, sing a couple of songs together. Um, I got a wee bit of pushback for choosing these songs because they're a bit old. They were, um, they were I think, characterized as being 1980s worship songs, to which I said, well, what's the problem with that? Um, we're going to sing a couple of songs. I've chosen them not to annoy our musicians. I've chosen them because I want us to start to vocalize what, we, what God's Word's calling us to do today. Both of these songs give us a chance to say, I trust in Him. And it's easier to say it than to do it, but maybe saying it will get us moving. So we're going to sing together the two songs be still and know that I am God and then safe in the shadow of the Lord. Look out for the trust parts in these songs. We'll stand as we sing. Chapters 36 to 39, they tell the story of the rise and fall of Jerusalem and the chapters come in narrative form, okay? So, Almost everything we've looked at so far in Isaiah has been in the form of a, a prophetic oracle, words from the prophet that have been recorded for us. But it's interrupted here with a narrative. 
for four chapters. And it's really to do with what happened in Jerusalem at the time of this Assyrian invasion. These chapters, a good way to think about them in relation to what we've just thought about, think of them as a case study. We've been seeing that Israel's leaders uh, throughout the time of the prophets, let's say, have, have failed to put their trust in God. They've, they've made alliances with the likes of Egypt. But now we're dropping down into a case study of one king in particular. We get to see King Hezekiah struggling with this very question, in whom will I put my trust? Because it's a, a narrative, we can't actually just jump around in it as easily. Narratives, you need to follow the argument, otherwise it doesn't work very well. So if you look at the titles in the NIV as signposts, uh, we'll drop down into the text once in a while to fill out the story. Look at those opening verses of uh, the opening verse of chapter 36. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. So it might have helped you to show you a map at this stage. Judah is in the south of, to the south of the northern kingdom of Israel. Sennacherib's already conquered Israel. He's swept down southwards towards Judah and Jerusalem. He's captured all the outlying cities and he's now at the gates of Jerusalem. Next up, Jerusalem. And this whole place is ours. Let's read on about this. The king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. When the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shevna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to meet him. The field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have counsel and might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look, I know you're depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff, which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. But if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord, our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? Come now. Make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. How then can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you're depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Notice the repeated idea and phrase in this passage. Verse 5, on whom are you depending? Verse 6, the field commander says, you're depending on Egypt. Verse 7, he questions the, the wisdom 
of people who say we're depending on the Lord. That's what this passage is all about. On whom are you depending? In whom do you trust? Let's stick with the story for a second. Chapter 37. When Hezekiah hears report from this delegation which has met with the Syrian field commander, he heads straight to the temple. He wants to be with God. He sends a message also to Isaiah. He says, verse 7, Isaiah's message comes back, verse 7, don't worry about Sennacherib. He'll return to his own country and there I'll have him put down with the sword. Verses 8 and 9, we hear that Sennacherib did hear report about other armies moving against him, so he withdrew his army from Jerusalem. But not before he'd sent a threatening message to Hezekiah. We said that this incident's all about dependence. Who is Hezekiah depending on and whom is he trusting? Well, at least at this point in his journey, Hezekiah's behavior is exemplary. We, we heard already that he's gone to the temple. We're told in verse 14 that when he gets this threatening letter, Hezekiah received the letter, this threat from Sennacherib, and read it. Then he went to the temple of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. I love that. Something very concrete about this. He's got the letter, takes it with him to the temple, and he, I don't know where he put it, he puts it, on, the, on a bench or on the, on the floor and he says, there it is. Lord, you see what they're saying about us, your people. You see what they're saying about you, there it is. There's something about that. It looks to me like he's taken his problem, something that, would you know? I can only imagine what that's like for a king when there's a, an enemy army surrounding you. But it feels to me like he takes his problem and makes it God's problem. Lord, here's this letter. There it is. Maybe that's something I need to learn to do. Quit carrying the stuff. Lay it out. There it is. I can't fix it, but you can. Hezekiah prays a beautiful prayer. It'd be a brilliant sermon just to look at his prayer, but we can't do that. Notice where it finishes, verse 20. Now, O Lord our God, deliver us from his hand so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord our God. I love that because he wants, he wants Jerusalem saved, doesn't he? I'm going to say he, he wants it saved so that he doesn't suffer and his people don't suffer with him the awful brutalities of a defeat in warfare in those days. I'm going to say that that's not missing, but he doesn't talk about that. 
He wants Jerusalem to be saved. Why? So that Jerusalem's God can have glory in the world. So that the world knows that Israel's God is the only true and living God. Are you there yet? Is God's glory your biggest passion? Isaiah prays that God would have glory in all the earth. Does God hear him? Does God keep his promise to deal with Sennacherib? Of course he does. Verse 36. The angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day, while he was worshipping in the temple of his god Nisroch, his sons Adramelech and Sherezer killed him with the sword, and they escaped to the land of Ararat, and Ershaddon, his son, succeeded him as king. Sennacherib had come to destroy Jerusalem, and the god of Jerusalem destroyed him. Folks, we've met a Hezekiah here. Bear in mind what I've said. Take this as a case study. Hold it knowing what we've said in the earlier chapters that we looked at this evening. Israel's kings have failed to put their trust in God. And here's a guy who's doing it. In verse 38, we'll see him doing it. He's done it in the most extreme external circumstances, political, let's say. If you're a king and there's an army besieging you, that's about as bad as it gets. But now, verse chapter 38, he's going to do it in the most pressing personal circumstances. We read in the opening verses of that chapter that Hezekiah was ill and at the point of death. Hezekiah is a man who's learning to trust God. What does he do? He prays. He asks God to remember his wholehearted devotion. Folks, we're talking here this evening about trusting God. It, it seems to me that we can talk till we're blue in the face about the time when we trusted Jesus or, you know, the things that we're trusting God with. One moment that seems to me to be almost definitive, what happens when we get the cancer diagnosis? It says that we have months or weeks to live. I've seen at close quarters in the lives of some of the guys in this church family what it means to trust God with your very life. It's a beautiful and a humbling thing. In this case, God hears Hezekiah's prayer and he responds by giving him 15 more years of life. So Hezekiah, we see him here, he's a guy who's depending on God. His dependence on God feels to me as I read the, the prophecy of Isaiah, it feels like a, a pinpoint of light in the darkness this dark period of leadership in Israel. At a time when all the other leaders appeared to, to fail to trust God, Hezekiah did. 
And this is where the Bible's so infuriating. Just when you want to make Hezekiah your pinup boy, poster boy for trusting in God, you get chapter 39. And we're reminded what we've seen so often in God's word before. There are no heroes in this book. Only the author is the hero. Hezekiah, it turns out, by the time we get to chapter 39, he too finds it hard to keep trusting in God. He's demonstrated this beautiful dependence on God with this imminent danger from Assyria, but then he slips back from that trust in God when it comes to Babylon. Let's, let's read this short chapter together. At that time, Marduk Baladan, there's another name you could add to your list, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of his illness and recovery. Hezekiah received the envoys gladly and showed them what was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine olive oil, his entire armory and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Now we're reading that and we're thinking, are you mad? It's not quite as mad as it appears. For anybody who knows the story of the Bible, Inviting Babylonians into Jerusalem to have a good look round seems like a bad idea. But in 712 BC, for Jerusalem to strike up an alliance with Babylon would have been the most natural thing in the world. Babylon had been trying to resist Assyria during the days of Assyria's uh, ascendancy, trying to break free from their domination. Hezekiah, he's become a sort of a, a leader of a, an anti-Assyrian coalition further to the south. Why wouldn't they choose to cooperate and work together? But even then, you can't help but read this and say, are, are you wise? Did you really have to show them everything? And our suspicions are confirmed as we read on. Isaiah arrives in the scene, verse 3. Then Isaiah the prophet went to Hezekiah and he asked, What did those men say? Where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied, They came to me from Babylon. The prophet asked, What did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There's nothing among my treasures that I didn't show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace, all that your predecessors have stored up until this day, will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away. They'll become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Assyria. Hezekiah, Jerusalem has survived the Assyrian Empire, but there's another empire to come. Babylon, those boys will be back. Jerusalem will fall. It's one of those chapters in the Bible where if you read it only on the surface, it might lead you to the conclusion that the Lord's judgment finally came on Jerusalem because Isaiah got a wee bit chummy 
one afternoon with a delegation from Babylon. That's not the case. The full explanation of why God finally withdrew his protection from Jerusalem is told in the book of Kings. Flick with me, we're nearly finished here. Chapter 17 of 2 Kings, page 388, if you're using the Pew Bible. The fall of Jerusalem to Babylon, it comes at the end of a long history of faithlessness, rebellion, refusal to listen, and most of all, a lack of trust. Look at verse 7 there. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God. This is, this is the exile now. Who had brought them up out of Egypt under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods. They followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the king of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles in every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place, they burned incense as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that aroused the Lord's anger. They worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in, or, in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. In God we trust. Israel's leaders didn't trust in God. Hezekiah did on occasion and it was a beautiful thing when he managed to. The kings of Israel and Judah failed but another king is coming. One who trusted his father entirely. One who said about his work and his life on earth, he said, I've come down from heaven not to do my will but to do the will of the one who sent me. One who said when he faced death in the garden, not my will, but yours. What are we going to do? Are we going to go through life from one splintered reed of a staff to another? Trusting in things that will damage us? and break us? Or are we going to learn the greatest lesson of all? Deep trust in Jesus Christ and with a total abandonment to the living God. In God we trust. Let's pray. Let's pray.